Now, my favorite track event to watch is the steeplechase. Now, I don't really even like racing or track events that much, but there's something about the steeplechase that I just find captivating. Um, now, if you don't know anything about it, it's a long-distance run. It's about 3,000 meters, and normal long-distance runs are just about surviving, right? Lasting and running a long distance. But the steeplechase adds an extra challenge to it. It adds a number of hurdles that are kind of all throughout the race, so you can't just keep your pace. You also got to be ready to jump. And then it's not just a hurdle race because four of these barriers that they have to go over are higher and they're a big wall and then there's a giant pit of water on the other end of it. And so most runners can't even jump over that last one. They have to step on it and try and make their way through. Now life is kind of like a steeplechase, especially our spiritual life. It's a long distance run where we're doing our best to try to chase after and follow Jesus, but all along the way there are these barriers that slow us down, trip us up, or keep us from running altogether. And these barriers are things that can try to distract us or pull us off course. And some of these barriers even keep people from wanting to start the race in the first place. And this morning, as we're in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, we're going to look at four barriers to following Jesus. And these are four things that all of us are going to face in our walk with Christ. But when Jesus, what we'll see, when he teaches us about these barriers, he doesn't just tell us about them. He shows us how we can overcome them. And so if you have a Bible, if you turn with me to Luke 18, we're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. I mean, if you're visiting with us, we are going to read this whole thing um, because that is our normal habit. Because the most important part of the sermon, I think, is the part where we read God's word that's what we're here to do. So if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word from Luke 18, starting in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or partners or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. 
and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come in this place, that you would remove the barriers from our eyes and from our hearts from being able to understand your word, that you would remove the barriers from us being able to apply it. Would you help us to hear from you and to obey what you command? We pray this in your name. Amen. Be seated. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, our first blank or our first point, our first barrier is pride. See that pride is a barrier, and the way that we overcome it is to admit our helplessness. So pride is a barrier. We need to admit our helplessness. This barrier is one that makes the disciples stumble. And it's not just one that makes them stumble. They are actually putting up this barrier in front of others, causing them to fall. We see this in 15. Now the crowd is bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Throughout the entire Gospels, people are coming up to Jesus to touch him, to listen to him, to follow him, to see him for themselves. And at this point, people just aren't bringing their children, they're bringing their infants to him. And their hope is that Jesus will touch them and maybe bless them. But the disciples tell him to stop. They don't just say, Jesus doesn't have time for your baby. They rebuke the people. Say, how foolish are you for wasting Jesus' time? Jesus is too busy with important people like us. He doesn't have time for babies. After all, Jesus' time on earth is going to be very short. He only spends about three years in public ministry. And for a while, this whole gospel of Luke, since chapter 9, he has been walking and heading towards Jerusalem because he has an appointment with the cross. He doesn't have time to talk to everybody in the world or everybody who wants to see him. So if you're one of Jesus' disciples, and you know they're trying to triage. They do what the assistants of famous people do. Their job is just to keep the riffraff away so only those who are really important can come in and talk to them to make sure that they have time to spend with the really important, significant people. And this is what the disciples think they need to do. Because infants don't have anything to offer Jesus. They might not even be awake. They certainly can't understand who it is that they're seeing and who is touching them. And in Jesus' day, too, infants weren't valued like they are today. Infant mortality rate was very high. Most babies just wouldn't make it, which may be why these mothers are bringing them to Jesus in the first place. But Jesus makes time for him. In 16, Jesus calls to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, because to such belongs the kingdom of God tells his well-meaning disciples to knock it off. He says, this is not a waste of my time. He says, this isn't me just being really gracious. The kingdom of God that I have been preaching about my entire ministry belongs to these infants. The kingdom of God belongs to those that the world finds insignificant or unimportant. The kingdom of God belongs to those who have nothing to offer it whatsoever. 
17, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus tells his disciples, stop trying to keep the children from me, and instead you should be taking notes. You should be learning from these children. You need to learn how to be helpless and dependent like a child. Because infants can't do anything for themselves, right? They can't go to the bathroom on their own. They have to be helped. They can't feed themselves. Even at night when they're very young, they have to figure out and be taught, hey, you need to sleep. Please go to bed. This is also how we need to be. We need to recognize how helpless and how dependent on Jesus that we should be. We have to recognize we can't get into the kingdom of God. We cannot follow Jesus on our own. We cannot follow Jesus because of our own merits. It can only become by God's grace and God's goodness and his invitation. But the disciples have forgotten that they were chosen, not because they were so amazing, but because of God's grace too. They've let their pride make them forget. They were helpless nobodies before Jesus found them. They were no more deserving of being chosen to be the twelve and the apostles than these infants that are being brought now. And we aren't any more deserving of Jesus' time than anyone else. And when we hear this story, we often want to be like the infants. We want to long to be people who are dependent on God, and we should long and strive to be, but oftentimes we are just like the disciples in our pride. And we can even be hindrances to those who want to come to Jesus. So every place, including our own community, right, is surrounded by people who are as vulnerable as infants, surrounded by those who are homeless, who are trapped in poverty, those who aren't citizens, those who are widows and homebound, those who are struggling with their sexuality, their gender, or who they even are. We might say like the disciples, no, don't come to Jesus. We don't want you here. We can set up, we can design our churches in a way that naturally excludes people so that they don't feel welcome or don't even feel like they can come and hear about the grace that Jesus offers and how he can change their life. And we could, some churches, right, we all got to wear suits and dress really fancy, which then makes anyone who can't afford a suit feel like they are unwelcome and can't come. We could design the service so it fits and matches a way that we want and makes it hard for unbelievers to even follow along or listen to understand who Jesus is. We could move our church building to a different place once it got surrounded by too many poor people or people of other ethnicities like many churches tend to do. The challenge that Jesus offers his disciples is to let go of their pride. That they have to admit that they are helpless like these babies. That they are just as in need of his grace as they are. We need to recognize that and we need to offer that grace to all who would come. The second obstacle um, is riches. second obstacle, if you're taking notes, riches are a barrier, so we need to give them away. I really wish Jesus didn't talk about money so much, but he does, and so we have to. Um, he tells us that riches are a barrier that will keep us from following him. Some of you might be raising your hand inside of thinking, well, that sounds like a great barrier. I would love to have that kind of problem. Um, there's part of me that thinks that too. But so much of the way that Jesus talks about money and wealth, it's almost always a warning. For the past few years, as I've studied and paid a little more attention to how Jesus talks about money, how he talks about possessions, he talks about it a lot differently than our culture does. He talks about it, makes it abundantly clear here, um, having possessions, having stuff, having riches, it makes it a lot harder to follow Jesus. And the only way to overcome that is by giving it away. 
It's the story of the rich young rulers we like to call him. He begins by asking a great question in 18. The ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can he be a part of the kingdom? How can he be a true follower of Jesus and gain eternal life? But he already has a few problems, which is why Jesus responds in 19. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some will try to wrongly think, ah, see, Jesus is saying he's not God. This is him admitting it here. No, this isn't Jesus saying that he's not God. It's not Jesus saying that he's not good. Jesus is saying, um, you need to decide. Do you think that I'm a good teacher or do you think that I am God? Am I good or am I God? Because how you decide that question determines your destiny. And Jesus presses further in 20, asks him, okay, well, have you kept the law? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Do you remember these Ten Commandments? We went through them on Wednesday night. There's a lot packed in every single one of those, isn't there? It's not just don't cheat on your spouse when you're married. It's you need to keep all lustful thoughts from your heart, even when you're single. It's not just don't murder people. It's do not even hate your enemies. Love those who hate you. It's not just don't steal. It's also don't want what other people have and don't be jealous and give it away. And there's so much more to the requirements of the law and reveal as we study them. What it should do is show, wow, I've fallen so short. I am in such need of God's grace. But the man responds and says, oh, all these I've kept for my youth. He definitely hasn't kept um, bearing false witness. Okay, he's totally missed the point. There's no way that that is true. Now, maybe we could be really gracious and say he's kept the letter of the law, but he's missed the spirit on the whole point. It seems as if he believes, I deserve salvation because look at how awesome I am. Look at how righteous I am. And Jesus is trying to show him, no, you need to be just like those infants I just saw. And you need to acknowledge how helpless you are and how much you need grace. 22, when Jesus hears this, he says to him, well, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus says, the one thing you haven't done is give away all your stuff to those in need. He says, if you want eternal life, you need to leave all this behind, and you need to come and follow me. You need to act just like my disciples who left all that they have to come and to follow me. In 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich he gets sad. He doesn't want to leave all that he has for Jesus. He wants to gain eternal life through his own actions without it costing too much. But Jesus tells him, now it's got to cost everything you have. You need to be willing to leave it all behind, give it to those in need, but this man can't, and he won't. His riches are a barrier. They are holding him back from even getting started in the race. He will never be able to follow Jesus as long as he has all this stuff because he can't let it go. 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus knows it, and Jesus makes a proclamation that riches are a barrier. And there's so much of a barrier that it's almost impossible for those with lots of possessions and stuff to follow Jesus. He says it'd be easier to push a camel through a little eye of a needle than for a rich person to be a follower of God. 26, those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, most of us, if we're honest, are like the crowd here. 
we hear Jesus say this and we have objections. Well, hold on, Jesus. I need you to clarify some things. And it's because the crowd realizes Jesus just isn't talking to this young ruler. He's talking to them too. He's talking to everybody who hears. He's telling them that, hey, you need to give up what you have and you need to come and follow me. And they don't want to. So they say, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, no one could really be your follower. And we still have these objections. There's all sorts of scholars who will, every commentary that you go and read, will try and twist and change what Jesus is saying here. Oh, well, he must not mean what he said when he said, sell what you have and come and follow me. Oh, the eye of a needle. Well, that must have just been a gate in the city that they called that. And, you know, camels kind of had to squeeze through. That's what it was. So it's hard, but, you know, we can still do it. Or we'll say, well, Jesus not met, must not have meant we actually had to give our stuff away, just that we need to be willing to give it away if we had to. Or, well, his problem wasn't that he was rich and had too much stuff. It's just that he loved it too much. You know, so we don't have to give our stuff away. We just got to be willing to. And we're kind of like addicts, right, who say, well, I can quit anytime I need to. Well, I could give away all of my stuff if Jesus asked me to, but he just hasn't asked. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't need to yet. I think that we just get so convicted by what Jesus says. Not just about money, but really anytime we get convicted about what Jesus says and we want to change it. And Jesus here tells us our riches are a barrier to following him. And if we don't want them to be a hindrance, we need to give them away. And Jesus also tells us, with me, you can. He reminds them of his grace because this is part of the gospel that Jesus can do the impossible. What seems impossible for us and what seems way too hard and difficult, Jesus can do. Jesus can bring what was dead back to life. He can transform us through the cross. He doesn't expect us, right, to stop loving our stuff on our own through our own strength. That through his grace, he can empower us. He can help us. And he can give us the ability to be willing to leave it all behind to follow him. His own disciples are an example of this. 28 Peter said, we've left our homes and followed you. Peter cries out, we, we left it all, that we heard your words and that you accomplished the impossible in us. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. See, the promise of Jesus that what we will gain is worth infinitely more than what we give up. That what we leave behind is... Nothing compared to what is ahead. That what we give away to the needy can never be wasted. Proverbs 19 and 17 tells us, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And our rewards, too, are not just in the life to come. He says they're also here now. We'll receive many times more in this time. Now, there are those who will lie to you about this promise. They'll tell you, well, this is Jesus saying something like a heavenly Ponzi scheme. Okay, if you just put $1,000 in our church offering box, God's going to give you 10000 more. So go ahead. So give me your money. Okay, that's not what Jesus is promising. After all, if riches are a barrier to following Jesus, why would he promise you more of them to make it even harder? Okay, he doesn't promise us earthly things. He promises us better things. That every cent we give away for Jesus, it helps set our souls free. It helps purchase the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I think that giving them away is really one of the only ways to find freedom. Now, you know, th this is where I'm tempted to go up and put a bunch of exceptions, but you already have all of our exceptions and, you know, why we don't have to. So I don't feel like I need to do that as much. I think we just all need to sit in the challenge of Jesus to sell what we have and to give it away.
Because if we're unwilling to depart with our things like the ruler was, then they still have a hold on our hearts. And this is why it's a, a spiritual habit, why the only way to get through it is to give stuff away. Because every time you give something away, it loosens its hold on your heart. It's hard to hold on to things. It's hard to love things that aren't yours anymore, that you've given to someone else. And every time we give, especially when it hurts and it's a sacrifice, and it's not just the junk we don't want anymore because we get something new that we love instead, we're hurtling over those barriers as we follow Jesus. Now, our third barrier. Um, see that ignorance is a barrier. We need to ask for sight. Ignorance is a barrier. We need to ask for sight. And by ignorance, I mean spiritual ignorance. Um, not understanding, not accepting the things of Jesus. It is a barrier in your walk. And we see this over and over in the Gospels. People are held back by their lack of faith. They're held back by their lack of understanding. And we see, again, even the disciples experience this ignorance. In 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Right? Since chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem. We're almost there. A promise. And he's telling the disciples, the moment you've been waiting for is almost here. The climax of the gospel is coming. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. All of their dreams are about to come true. All of the promises that God has made, promises from Moses to Elijah through all of the prophets, they're going to be realized in Jerusalem once Jesus gets there. 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. You know, those aren't the promises they thought would come true, are they? Jesus tells them the Messiah, he's going to be rejected by Israel, he'll be rejected by the Jews. They'll say, no, we don't want this Messiah here, you Gentiles, you can have him instead. And instead of the Messiah coming to reign in glory, he will be mocked, spit upon, shamefully treated, flogged, beaten half to death, and then they will finish it and kill him. But on the third day, he will come back to life. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. None of it makes any sense. They're totally ignorant. They can't comprehend what Jesus means. This isn't even the first time Jesus has told them this. It's not the first time Jesus has explained his plan, and it won't be the last. But they still don't get it. Their ignorance is a, is a barrier, and when the suffering comes, they're going to run away and flee because they won't be strong enough to keep following him. But notice, too, where some of their ignorance comes from. It says this saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. I don't think they didn't get it because they're dumb. I don't think they didn't get it because Jesus was using weird words because God hadn't explained it yet. Um, they didn't get it because God hadn't given them the ability to understand yet. But so how should they respond then? If God has hidden it from them and they don't get it and Jesus is talking and they don't, don't do, what should they say? What should they say to Jesus? Well, they should ask for help. They should say, Jesus, I don't get what you're saying. Can you teach this to me? Can you reveal it? It doesn't make any sense. I do not understand. And that is what we should do too. There are so many times when we don't understand what God is doing. When you look around in the world, when you look around in your life and you don't, you, you're ignorant. God, I cannot see what your plan is. 
what are you doing? Or even just when we read his word, like some of the passages this morning, you go, I don't know what that means. Should we just sit there and say, oh, well, and then move on? Or should we ask for Jesus to help us? This is why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. That then when the Holy Spirit came, he opened up the disciples' eyes, and then they could understand everything that Jesus had meant. And the Holy Spirit comes to open up our eyes and to help us see. And so we should ask him to help us see. This is why um, often, not every time, but a lot of the times before the sermon, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. That he would remove the barriers from our eyes. That he would illuminate his word and open up our hearts. That he would reveal what is hidden. Because there are some barriers, some of our spiritual ignorance comes because we're just not trying to love Jesus with all our heart, our soul, and strength, and we can. But some of them are just because God's hidden it from us. And unless we humble ourselves and unless we ask for him to reveal it, he won't. And this is part, one of the main reasons Jesus came. This is why Jesus tells his disciples later, I have to leave you so that the Holy Spirit can come. So that he can remove this barrier from you. Sounds kind of faster, but our last barrier here that we're going to see is the crowd is a barrier. We need to cry out for mercy. The crowd is a barrier, cry out for mercy. Now, the world, the masses, what is popular, the culture, can often try and will try to keep you from following Jesus. But we have to cry out to him and ask for help anyway. Our chapter ends here with the story of a blind man. That's one of my favorite stories um, in the Bible of Jesus healing someone. Because all the while, everybody around him is trying to stop him and try to keep him, but he doesn't let it. 35, as Jesus draws near to Jericho, a blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So outside the famous city of Jericho, there's a blind man who's begging. He's begging for money so he can provide for himself so he can eat. And here's a ton of people around. He knows it's a crowd, but he doesn't know why. He can't see it, so he has to ask, what's happening? What is all this noise? And they tell him in 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. They tell him Jesus is coming. And that explains the crowd, and he seems to know who Jesus is. Seems to know exactly, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is here. Okay, because he immediately cries out in 37, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice the difference. If you read too fast, you can miss it. Between what the crowd says about Jesus and what the blind man says about Jesus. Because the crowd says the place in Israel that Jesus is from. It's a normal statement. You would say that about anybody. But the blind man says who Jesus is. He's making a theological statement. It's the only place right here in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is called the Son of David. He's calling Jesus the Messiah. Saying that Jesus is the promised Son of David. The King who was promised that when God said the throne will never pass away from David. And we are waiting for his Son to come and be born again and to rule blind man is loudly shouting, this is it. And he cries out for mercy. He acknowledges his helplessness, his dependence on Jesus. He's crying out for grace. 39, but those who are in front of him, they rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. Tell him to stop. In fact, they don't just tell him to stop. They tell him to shut up and be quiet. And it's not just because they're being really rude. 
It's not just because they don't seem to care about his plight and they don't want Jesus to heal him. It's because he's saying something dangerous. He's making not just a theological statement that's going to anger the religious leaders. It's going to anger the Pharisees who have been mad at Jesus for quite a while. He's also making a political statement. His cry is going to anger the Romans. Israel is not supposed to have a Jewish king. They're supposed to be under Roman control. So if you go around in a big city where the Romans are and start saying, here is our king, here is the one who will bring our freedom and our independence, well, I don't think the Romans would like that very much. And they don't. They killed many people for less. So the crowd rebukes him and they tell him to be quiet, but he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't stop. He cries out even louder and he doesn't change his cry either. He doesn't soften it to make it less offensive or make it less dangerous or stop hurting people around him. He just cries out to the Messiah for mercy. And I'm amazed at his faith. Because he has no idea how close Jesus is. He can't see where Jesus is. Jesus may have already passed him by. Jesus may be way too far away to hear him. For all he knows, his crying is totally pointless and will go unheard and unheeded. And the whole crowd around him, while he's yelling, is pressuring him. They're screaming. They're trying to shout over top him. They're telling him to stop. And he's trying to cry as loud as he can, as often as he can, just so that maybe, possibly, Jesus could hear my voice. Because when the pressure is mounting, when everyone around us is telling us to stop, I think we too should raise up our voices to Christ to call for mercy. And when we do, Jesus hears, no matter how loud the crowd is, no matter how strong the opposition is. And 40, and Jesus stopped, and Jesus commanded the crowds to bring him to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. I love that Jesus hears, and I love that Jesus asks too. And Jesus never seems to force his healing on any one. He asks them if they want to receive it. And it seems he gives them an opportunity to ask in faith. It also most seems here like Jesus is going to show this man whatever mercy he dares to ask for. And he asks the Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight. He followed him and he glorified him. Man's healed. Faith that wouldn't be hindered, that couldn't be stopped by the crowd, helps him receive grace. And he responds how the crowd should have responded. He responds, too, how the ruler should have responded because he leaves what he has and he follows Jesus after. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. This is a beautiful thing here, too. When when we don't let the barriers of the world or the crowd hold us back, when we choose to follow Jesus anyway and to cry out to him for mercy... It doesn't just keep us on the right path in the midst of our opposition. Um, It can change those around us. That this man's faith and his determination, it helped the crowd. Instead of them changing his behavior and getting him to stop, his faith changed theirs. And now they are glorifying God too. So we face opposition in the crowd and the world. We should cry out louder to God. Not just because we're trying to fight them or trying to defeat them, but because we're trying to convert them. We want them to worship God like we do. And to follow him too. You know, I couldn't help um, but think of Bishop Kumar Swarmi, who came to speak to us on Wednesday night when I read this story. 
told us a lot about the Christians in India and the persecution that they face, and I got to hear more from him, and so we had dinner together. Told a story about pastors being beaten in the middle of the sermon, and then told, hey, if you come back next week, we're going to kill you. Listen to stories about him from numbers of pastors that are locked in prison for daring to share the gospel and crying out to Jesus. And yet after all the stories that he shared in my time with them, um, he didn't tell me any stories about them fighting back. I never heard him complain once about how unfair and how cruel all of it was. Just cried out to God. And he said, well, we just get together and pray more and worship God. He kept running after Jesus, not letting any barrier stand in their way. And their opposition is a lot more serious than the opposition we face here. And if they can keep running after Jesus, and if they can do so joyfully, faithfully, shouldn't we too? This morning we've looked at um, just four barriers that can keep us from following Jesus. Seeing that pride is a barrier, we have to admit our helplessness. Riches are a barrier, we need to give them away. Ignorance is a barrier, we need to ask for sight. And the crowd can be a barrier, we need to cry out for mercy. Ultimately, we can only overcome these barriers, not in our own strength, but through Jesus. You will not be able to jump over these or conquer these on your own. You have to be like an infant and to cry out to God for grace crowd as loud as we can. And if we do, he will respond. He will take us by the hand and he will help us follow him. Invite our worship team to come up and say, pray one more time. Lord, I, we just ask that you would help us. Lord, we want to follow you. Lord, we want to follow you no matter the temptations, no matter the distractions, no matter the very real opposition that we face from inside of ourselves, from the enemy, from the world. But Lord, we try to do it on our own strength and we keep falling in the mud, keep tripping over our own feet. Lord, we can only do it if you help us. We can only follow you if you show us your grace and if you carry us, Lord, would you carry us? Would you destroy our pride and would you help us to trust you? To trust you when we don't understand and to keep following you no matter what is placed in our path. Because if you don't help us, we can't do it. And we need you. We pray this in your holy and precious name, Jesus, the son of David. Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior one more time through song? Just a reminder, our discipleship class will be taking place right after our service. If you've missed a few or haven't been yet, feel free to come anyway. It's worth your time. Um, here's our benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.